So if we accept that this is God's story and his gospel, and it's been multi-ethnic from the beginning, one ought to ask, well, how do we live into that? How do we participate in God's story in a way that distinguishes us as ones who have in fact accepted that this is God's story? Like what are the markers of a life or of a church body that, that takes up God's mission as their own? Well, I'm glad you asked um, because God gives us the answer right here in scripture, right here in the first book in the Bible where we've been. So we saw earlier that Abraham was the seed of the nation and was uh, in, in, in the father of nations. And so from Genesis 12 through 18, God refers to Abraham in the covenant that he's promising him, but it's, sometimes it's in parts and, and it's in pieces. And by the time we get to chapter 18, it's, he mentions um, the how, the how the, of this covenant. And so... Uh, how are Abraham and his offspring supposed to live in light of this covenant promise? And so in Genesis 18 and 19, it says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. When we think of righteousness and justice in terms of like God's gospel story, we think of it forensically, like in terms of man being justified, made right by God before God um, because of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And so our concept of righteousness or justice tends to be spiritual. And, uh, and we apply that righteousness and justice to our souls. But um, in reality, this verse, God, if for God, he had something way more practical in mind for the people of Israel way more social, way more social. Um, God desires his people to be marked by the twin pairing of doing righteousness and justice for the sake of community. For ancient Israel, doing righteousness was uh, to have a devout and sincere love for God and to follow his commands, which had ethical implications. And justice referred to living uh, upright, socially moral lives among those in the land. One commentary says that in regard to justice, it was incumbent upon Israel's rulers to ensure social equity for the Lord rules his people with moral integrity and fidelity. And that justice is achieved by right conduct, truth, and equity. Righteousness and justice were community terms. And righteousness... God is referring to the proper way that man is to interact with him. And in justice, he's referring to the proper way man is to interact with his fellow man. Both were distinguishing marks of God's multi-ethnic community. His people had to meet the ethical demands of ordering themselves properly before him and ordering themselves properly among one another in the land. And what is this but a practical, visible, tangible distinction to love God and to love your neighbor. But what do these twin pairings, what are these, what do these two marks tell us about God's community? It tells us that both the stewardship of the soul in right relationship with God and the stewardship of the physical body in relationship to other people is really of the utmost importance to God because of the ethical implications for the development 
of a social, a multi-ethnic community. Meaning that if we don't get this right, we will be hard pressed to develop that multi-ethnic community today. Well, how do you mean? Well, because of the fall. The fall ensures that we will have the propensity to order ourselves as, to order ourselves to fashion gods that we will then worship and to order people according to hierarchies that we create in our societies. We are prone to worship idols. We are prone to walk in unrighteousness. We are prone to act unjustly and to order people by skin color, by class, by gender, by socioeconomic status, by education levels, the list goes on. You name a distinction and our fallen state has made a list and a category and a hierarchy for it. This is what we're prone to do. We are prone to make dividing lines and distinctions that privilege some and disadvantage others. Our hearts lean towards injustice and inequity. But this is God's story. And God's story of him moving towards man with the message of redemption that rights all of the wrongs. We tell people about the right way to order their hearts, not to idols, but to God. We share a message of doing what is right among one another, justice. And we correct the wrong that has been done amongst one another. The gospel with its multi-ethnic message to make a multi-ethnic cross-cultural people heals what is broken relationally from the fall between man and God and between man and man. Doing righteousness and justice are the ways that we participate in that healing. These are biblical words, not trends from secular ideologies. These are biblical words rooted in the story of God, rooted in the gospel. The church today, as the people who participate, in, who participate in God's story based upon the completed work of Christ should too bear out these marks of righteousness and justice. But as New Testament believers, we don't do it centripetally with people coming in as Israel did. We should do it centrifugally, right? Where the force spins us out into the world. We take this message out into our communities, into the nations. We do so with the mindset of building a cross-cultural community because that's the story that's been handed down to us. Evan shared with us um, the definition of cross-cultural, how, it, how it's a process that's intentional. And what I love about that definition he shared is that it's active, right? It does things, it listens, it learns, it engages, it loves, it acts. It feels. And so that's the third factor in being um, in this multi-ethnic community that God intended. How we possess, as we possess a greater understanding of God's intent for a multi-ethnic cross-cultural gospel, and we have a firm grasp on these distinguishing marks of righteousness and justice, we then have to do something with it. We have to act by taking that message out into our small world that we're in, into our spheres. Remember, God's story is his multi-ethnic cross-cultural message on mission to make a multi-ethnic cross-cultural people. 
So when we share that same message, we're on mission too. When we share a multi-ethnic understanding of the gospel, you'll do so invariably with people who are not from your same cultural background. Because you yourself are located in a very particular situation. You have a very particular culture. You're going to meet someone who's not from your region, who didn't grow up in the South. You're going to meet someone who didn't grow up in the North. You're going to meet someone who has a different socioeconomic background, a different education level. You're going to meet someone from a different ethnicity who's not from your home culture. So then the question is, armed with a multi-ethnic understanding of the gospel, what do we do with our own culture when we seek to share this gospel with someone else from a different culture? Well, you have to layer it. You're going to have to just layer it. Because a Christian community ought to be layered with various cultural distinctions. To state it plainly, the Christian culture cannot be one culture. I grew up in the Midwest, in Missouri. And I went to Carolina for undergrad. And as a Midwesterner, I really prided myself in the fact that we did not have an accent. <laughs> very flat, like a newscaster. <laughs> and uh, it was very apparent that this was the case when I went to Carolina because Southern draws are real. <laughs> and I was just, I was flabbergasted. I was like, what? Um, so fast forward some years, I marry a Texan and settle down in the South, but yet I am determined to have our kids have the same flat Midwestern accent that I do, <laughs> simply because I just think it's better. <laughs> so then imagine my surprise when um, my second oldest son comes home from preschool some years ago and tells me that he had a great time drawing with cranes. <laughs> I said, you do with what? He said, crayons. I'm like, again, from the Midwest, took me a second. I had no idea what he was saying. And I, and I, then it took me a second. I'm like, oh, okay, you're talking about that wax in my head. I'm like, he's talking about that wax writing tool. I'm like, you mean crayons? He's like, yeah, crayons. I said, no, crayons. Crayons, you're saying it wrong. Now, was he saying it wrong to me in my cultural background? Yes. Yes, he was. Was I judging? Was I demonstrating my cultural superiority in judging his southern accent? Yes, yes, I was. But were we talking about the same thing? Yes. Yes, we were. That's how I like to think about processing a cross-cultural Christianity. A truly cross-cultural understanding of Christianity has room for different cultural pronunciations of the same risen Savior. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary theologian who spent three decades in India and was a prolific writer when he retired in England, um, wrote this. I believe that the truth is credible only when the witness born to it is marked not by the particularities of one culture, but by the rich variety of all human cultures. We learn to understand what it means to say that Jesus is king and head of the whole human race only when we learn to hear that confession from the many races that make up the human family, 
In the end, we shall know Jesus as he really is when every tongue shall confess him in all the accents of human culture. Christian culture is not monocultural. It can't be. For the reason that we just discussed, a multi-ethnic gospel, a multi-ethnic mission of God implies that there's an expansion, an expression of that gospel that will also be multicultural. Why? Because a multi-ethnic message on a mission makes a multi-ethnic people. Please note that this cross-cultural reality is possible when the multi-ethnic vision of the gospel is understood to be missiological. The expansion of the gospel assumes that people have, who have accepted it will go out and share it with others. It assumes that this missiological gospel requires that you and I take this out into the world, not simply that the church holds on to it, and wants people just to come to it. The New, the New Testament church is a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural, and, and cross-cultural because the gospel message is missiological, as God's story has been from the beginning. But it's also empowered with that centrifugal force of, of Jesus' Great Commission. So in order to become a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural community, we need to build a community rooted in this understanding that the multi-ethnic cross-cultural gospel is good news that moves out, not only good news bound up in the, in, in the ecclesiology of the church. And so let's look at Acts for a second because um, this is when the gospel goes cross-cultural. And in Acts 10, it starts with, um, uh, Acts 10 starts with Cornelius having a vision um, about Peter. And he has a vision to have Peter come to his home. And Peter, who's a devout Jew, um, is at that time uh, very holding very tightly to his Jewish culture. He's having a prayer meeting, a prayer session up on top of his roof. And he begins to pray. And the scripture says he was praying and he became hungry. And it was at that moment that he fell into a trance and he saw a sheet descending from heaven with all sorts of hooved animals, reptiles, and birds. And a voice comes from heaven. God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Peter's Jewish and cultured response was to say, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. And Peter had to be told three times that what God has made clean, do not call common. Mind you, Peter had a need. He was hungry. And even in a trance, he would rather hang on to his Jewish ways and deny a need being met. To deny a need being met due to cultural normativity. This is, we are not far off from that. People out here in our neighborhoods or in our schools or in our schools or our children's schools, they have a real need. I'm not just talking about just physical hunger, although that might be an issue too. They have a real spiritual need. And we say no because they don't match up to our culturally formed understanding of who we ought to build community with. 
So Peter, after the trance, he gets summoned to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius was a centurion. He was a Roman. So he was a Gentile. And up until this point, the Jewish believers had only seen faithfulness to Christ expressed in Jewish ways, and in Jewish culture. So when Peter gets to this house, the first thing he says out loud is, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Now, that should give you like, wait a second. That's just not what we've just been discussing these past few minutes. It might jump out. It's a little strange that Peter is saying that they are not to visit anyone from another nation. I mean, we just walked through God's intent for multicultural, multi-ethnic people with his message. So where's Peter getting this from? Well, unfortunately, the nation of Israel misunderstood the assignment. <laughs> and they thought that their chosenness made them exclusive. And it seeped out into their theological and practical expressions of the faith. And they made all these laws in order to keep God's commands. And so God had to send Peter this vision three times just to undo the monocultural theological expression he was used to. So after Cornelius explains his vision, explains to Peter why he's brought him to his house, then Peter says in Acts 30, 10, 34, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Every nation. And after that statement, Peter shares the gospel. The story of God moving toward man, namely in the man, Jesus Christ. And he preaches the gospel to this Gentile family. This is the correct understanding of God's story, of God's mission to mankind. This is the understanding that allows for different cultural expressions of the faith. This is the understanding that allows for the nations to receive the grace of God this is the understanding that, it, that demonstrates an inherent comprehension of the cross-cultural intent of God's story that motivates us to action, to build cross-cultural communities. Because that was the start of the Gentile Jewish church. So with all of this biblical evidence we have, we have struggled still as a community and as a church as a family or as an individual. We've struggled to display these truths to their fullness. So we have to spend the last few moments of our time um, exploring why. Why have we failed to see this in scripture? Why have we failed to build our communities in multi-ethnic cross-cultural? Why have we failed to do that in this way? Why have we bristled or rolled our eyes or given an exasperated sigh or felt a tightness in our chest and experienced anxiety when we talk about growing in multi-ethnic cross-cultural missions and becoming a cross-cultural community. Why do we do these things when we worship the triune God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had a multi-ethnic vision for his people? Well, again, we're gonna just go back to scripture. We're gonna let that illuminate our way. Um, we're going to go back to Genesis uh, because that's where God demonstrated his multi-ethnic cross-cultural plan 
And I want us to look at a passage that I think helps explain why we struggle so much with this vision, from, with this intent from God. So in Genesis uh, 35, 1 through 4, it says, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar there to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I want to use this text illustratively to highlight what I believe is happening in our day. Jacob was called to come worship God, which was required for proper order. There's a proper way to worship God. And to prepare his people to do so, he told them to put away their foreign gods. Because you can't worship two. Now, Jacob already knew God intimately as the one who answers him in the day of his distress. In fact, he had erected an altar to God just a few chapters before and called it El Eloe Israel when God delivered him from Esau. He knew and he worshiped God and his family knew and worshiped God. Yet, here we have the fact that they still possessed idols. Idols that had beauty and status. Idols that were associated, um, they probably gathered from the people of Shechem. And these idols had rings, rings in their ears, they had rings in their own ears. And they were associated with pagan worship. And the people, and people of his family had incorporated that pagan worship into their bodies with the rings in their ears. And they still knew the true and living God. But in order to worship God properly, they had to get rid of their idols and bury them. So commentators note that this tree can be identified with the tree of Moreh at Shechem, mentioned in Abraham's encounter with Yahweh many years earlier in Genesis 12, 6 through 7. The burial of foreign gods and rings at this place under this tree marks a surrender of the items of the people of Jacob's household to the lordship of Yahweh. So I bring this story up to illustrate that it's possible to know God and to still hang on to idols, but it's not possible to worship him properly with those idols. Friends, I really do believe that we struggle to see God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural vision because our sights are blocked by idols. We struggle to be convinced to live faithfully in God's multi-ethnic, cross-cultural community because we have taken the idols of this world and attached them to our bodies and called them beautiful. And we are unable to worship him properly because of it. We have wrapped our shoulders with the idol of comfort 
not wanting to move outside of that comfort zone, but stay within ourselves when it comes to sharing the gospel with those who don't look like us. We hang on to the, to the idol of capitalism. We hang it around our neck, capitalism and profit. We hang it around our neck to the point that we don't even flinch when our gains or our inheritances have caused inequity and injustice in our neighbor's lives. We pierce our ears with the idols of nationality as Americans. We place our love of country before God, and we see it as exceptional at every turn. We adorn our heads with the idol of political conservatism and liberalism in vain attempts to fashion this country into something that is suitable to our tastes. We cover our necks with the idol of arrogance, which refuses to let us to submit in humility to anyone who does not share our status, our education level, or our cultural background. We have a hard time finding, uh, humbling ourselves before the uh, underrepresented or a person who shares a different narrative or experience than we do. We rest our heads on the idol of apathy. If it doesn't bother me, it's not a problem. And we cover our hands with the idol of power because we secretly believe that all we have and all that we have accomplished has been of our own doing. And if that power goes, then that will be the end of us. And then we cover our chests with the idol of privilege and beat it every so often when someone challenges us about it or any of it. And adorning ourselves with this form of golden and wooden statues, we are unable to build a cross-cultural community. We are unable to be concerned about the righteousness and justice of God. We are unable to share God's multi-ethnic cross-cultural gospel message. We are unable to worship him properly. All we're able to do is find solace and comfort among those who are bound by the same idols. Friends, this is not beautiful. This is syncretism. And we have deceived ourselves into thinking that we can adorn ourselves to the idols of this world and love God and love the people of this world properly. This unholy paganism and the faith will always choke out our ability to represent and carry out God's multi-ethnic cross-cultural message. We must find the faith, courage, and humility and the simple obedience, as Jacob and his family did, to bury those idols. And we must bury them at the foot of the tree. We must bury them at the foot of the tree that held our incarnate Savior, who in his body and upon his death tore down the dividing walls of hostility. We must bury our idols at the cross of Christ and pick up his grace and forgiveness so we might move out into the world knowing his intention for a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural message, bearing the distinctions of righteousness and justice, so we might take action to build a multi-ethnic and cross-cultural community.